Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have, debt and bankruptcy. So let's dive in. In working with couples that come into my office, I find that of all of the reasons that can create the necessity of seeing a a divorce lawyer, uh, financial arguments and financial struggles are pretty high on the list, higher than I think the average person would think. People believe it's about infidelity or other people or growing apart, but the financial stress that a couple can ensue for a variety of reasons, loss of job, illness, poor planning, poor investments, just economic changes um, in the environment can really do a lot of damage to marriages. And so tonight we have the good fortune to have Heather Culp here. I guess some of the options that divorcing parties might have if they look into bankruptcy, whether or not it is an appropriate thing for them to consider that's going to ultimately help them out of the problem that they have financially. Because I can assure you that divorce is not going to help you out of the problems you're having financially. So if that's one of the the things that's brought you to my office, it is something we need to do. So I know Heather because of her work as a bankruptcy attorney. We've known each other for a number of years, and she's fantastic. But uh, Heather, tell everybody some of the other things that you do. Well, thank you for having me, Lee. I'm really excited to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about a subject that you and I have worked together on, we've spoken on at seminars, um, and that's important to a lot of people. I have been practicing law for 21 years now. I practiced for five years up in Kentucky, and I moved here to Charlotte in 2002. I have been doing mostly bankruptcy and debtor-creditor related work since I moved here in 2002, so for about 15 years or so. That can be a number of things. It can be being the neutral party in a foreclosure. I only do commercial foreclosures. I don't do residences. It can be suing or defending lawsuits for breach of contract, breach of guarantee, breach of warranty, different business-related disputes. It can be advising people who owe money or people who are owed money about what their options are and what the best way is out of a bad situation. So if it has to do with debt or credit, chances are I can probably help with it. Well, and you've been doing it for a long time, and I know you're on my short list um, to call or, or to have my clients call as well when these issues come up. Um, but you've also been something that's near and dear to my heart, very generous with your time with our local um, bar association. So you were just recently the president of the Mecklenburg County Bar Association. You just finished that term, correct? That is right. I turned back into a regular citizen July 1st. It was a great experience. The local bar here is 5,500 lawyers strong, and it was a real honor and privilege to serve as president last year. 
but now I am back to focusing more on clients and work, and I'm happy to be here with you. Well, you're also doing a little bit of work that is also very important here in Charlotte, so I want you to take a moment to to talk about the work you're doing with Access to Justice. I have been a volunteer attorney for Charlotte Center for Legal Advocacy here in Charlotte, used to be known as Legal Services for Southern Piedmont, as well as for Legal Aid of North Carolina for a number of years now. I take pro bono assignments from those organizations when the work that I do fits within their mission, and you and I both give money to those organizations as well. And this year, I'm really happy to serve as the chair for the Access to Justice campaign. That is the campaign in Mecklenburg County that raises money for those two organizations to support the work that they do the good attorneys who work there full-time, legislative advocacy and things like that. And we have a goal of raising $500,000 this year. We can do it. Wish me luck. But that's that's what I'll be focusing on most of my volunteer time on over the next year. Thank you for asking about that. Well, it's very important because that's the ironic thing about the conversation that we're getting ready to have. So when you're having financial problems, problems that are going to disrupt your marriage and your life and, and you're having these issues, getting good legal advice and getting good guidance is, is difficult if you don't have the money, I imagine, for most people. And there's a lot of people that would have a hard time understanding why they should spend the money talking to a legal professional in these areas when they could maybe pay a, a debt with it or should use that money for something else. So uh, that's why this is is a very important topic because I think people uh, don't realize that may be kind of short-sighted. So how common is bankruptcy? Much more common than I think most people believe. The last statistic that I saw was as of the end of 2015, and it suggested that 12% of the adult population in the United States has filed for bankruptcy, and that of those people, about 18% have filed more than once. I have a number of repeat filers at any given time. I often tell the story of a client I had several years ago telling me, you know, that she had asked a coworker for a reference for a bankruptcy attorney. And she told her coworker who she sits next to every day that it was for a friend. You know, the uh-huh. age old, a friend has a problem. And that coworker referred her to me. Well, what the person who called me didn't know was that the coworker had filed for bankruptcy as well uh-huh. through my office. So I had two people who were best friends at work who sat next to each other every day. They'd each filed through me and they were too embarrassed to tell each other about it. I can almost guarantee you that if you're listening to this, whether you know it or not, somebody in your family, in your office, in your place of worship, has had to go this route. And obviously, nobody wants to file for bankruptcy. It's not our lifelong dream to mm-hmm. to do this. But I tell people it's, in my mind, a lot like divorce. Long time ago, divorce had a terrible stigma. You know, the 50s, 60s, it was just a horrible social stigma to it. Nobody gets married planning to divorce. But if you get into a situation and it gets bad and you need to get out, that's what you need to do. Likewise, with finances, I think all of us take on debt with the very best of intentions and with optimism, thinking it's all going to work out and I'm going to be able to pay it all back. But a lot of us are one paycheck away or one separation away or, you know, one illness away from not being able to pay things on time. So I think those those situations have a lot of things in common. And there are a lot of times when bankruptcy makes sense, especially when you're separating or getting a divorce and you have a lot of debt. It can be the best way out of a bad situation. That is true. So just give everybody just a, a overview of what you the major chapters are in bankruptcy that are going to be applicable to most of the listeners. Most of what I do 
and my work life is represent individuals and married couples who have more debt that they than they think they can afford to pay in full. At least they can't afford to pay it on time and in full. And for people and for married couples, generally you're looking at two options. The most common types of bankruptcy are Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. Chapter 7 is a liquidating bankruptcy. Some people call it a straight bankruptcy or a simple bankruptcy. It does not involve any monthly payments. The only way that creditors get any payment in a Chapter 7 is if there is property that the debtor owns, that's the person in bankruptcy, that is above and beyond the property that we're all allowed to keep safe from our creditors. If you have something more than that, then the trustee will liquidate that and use that to pay your creditors. And it can be liquidated one of two ways. One, it's taken from you and sold. Or if it's something that's really important to you and you have the ability to pay, you can settle to keep that property and the money that you pay to keep the property will go to your creditors. A common example is some jewelry that's been in the family for a long time. Let's say it's worth, you know, $5,000 and it does not fall within all the property that you're allowed to keep. In that situation, we can negotiate with the Chapter 7 trustee to pay, say, $3,500 or $4,000 to keep that property. That's the only way a creditor gets payment. Most Chapter 7 cases are open about four months. It's generally a predictable calm process. There usually aren't surprises, at least not in my cases. And the other type of bankruptcy that we commonly put people and married couples in is a chapter 13. It's still a bankruptcy, but it's a personal reorganization. You propose a monthly plan to make one payment to the local bankruptcy trustee for a minimum of 36 months, a maximum of 60 months. So it's three to five years worth of payment. And you're paying a combination of what the law says that you have to pay And on top of that, anything that you can afford to pay. When people come into my office to talk about Chapter 13, it sounds a little bit at first blush like a debt settlement or a debt consolidation or a debt management because you are making a monthly payment and the trustee is depositing that check and paying it out to your creditors. But we are not settling debts. We are not negotiating settlements. And there generally is no tax consequences to a bankruptcy. You're not going to get a 1099 for debt that you settled and the amount that's written off. But it does feel a little bit like that because you are making some payment. Mm -hmm. So Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 are typically what we're talking about with people and with married couples. Now, with married couples, you have the option to file a joint bankruptcy or to individually file. So how do you talk people through that decision-making process? And what are some of the factors that are important in deciding whether both parties are going to be filing or whether just one will? Yeah, there's no requirement if you're married that both spouses file. It's fairly common for only one spouse to file. We refer to the other person as the non-filing spouse. And typically what we're doing is looking at the debt load. Some couples, one person has the vast majority of the debt. And it's typically the husband if it's a husband and wife couple. For whatever reason, you know, the husband will have most of the credit card debt, the mortgage, the car payments, things like that. In those kinds of situations, it's fairly easy to decide we're only going to file the husband. Eligibility for bankruptcy for both Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 is based on household income. And that's something that people are sometimes surprised about when they come in to talk to me. 
So, you know, let's say we have Jane Doe and John Doe. John has all the debt and John's out of work, but Jane's got a $250,000 a year job. If John wants to file for bankruptcy, odds are he is not going to qualify for Chapter 7. His income is not going to be low enough because his household income is pretty high. But we typically look at who's got the debt. Sometimes, you know, it's one spouse or the other. Sometimes it's split fairly evenly or there's a lot of joint debt, a lot of joint cards, credit cards. And one thing that we say fairly often is tax debt. A lot of people don't know that under the right circumstances, income tax can be discharged in a bankruptcy. And it's fairly common, unfortunately, for us to meet with a couple you know, one let's one spouse has had W two jobs there for their whole career. They've had regular withholdings. They don't really have any tax problems. But the other spouse is a business owner, a ten ninety nine employee, or otherwise not having withholdings. They're not making those regular quarterly installment payments on their taxes. They get horribly behind on their tax debt, and then those spouses file a joint return. Would have been much better even if it's a little bit more expensive to file married filing separately because you've got two, you know, maybe have to pay the CPA to file two separate returns and it messes with your exemptions and your deductions. Much better if you're that spouse who's had withholdings not to get stuck with that tax debt because you're jointly and severally liable for the whole thing. I know that definitely is one of the issues when people come in. It's a big one. People don't know a lot of times that they could have handled it completely differently. they don't. And there is innocent spouse relief after the fact, but it's hard and it's expensive. When you add on the complication of a separation, that's a little bit of a game changer. One attorney, one bankruptcy attorney can meet with and represent a separated couple in a bankruptcy. As long as they're separated, they're not divorced. Once you're divorced, you can't file a joint filing. But as long as they're separated, their goals are on the same page. You know, the purposes of the bankruptcy are the same. There's no conflict between the two of them. And they're willing to be open and honest with me and with each other. It's perfectly normal and acceptable. I wouldn't say it's common, but it happens a lot. And I've represented several separated couples over the years. They can file a joint Chapter 7 petition. Much more difficult to do it in a 13 because it's a three to five year obligation. But if there's no imminent plans to divorce, it could even be done there. So that's a little extra wrinkle when we're wandering into your world. It's can we do this together or should we really get separate lawyers and do this separately? Well, then I know it becomes challenging to figure out whether they can do it jointly or will do it jointly if the separation or the divorce is is more imminent. I know that that definitely complicates it on my side of the table with the clients um, because they're trying to tangle their lives and their finances and the idea of being committed for three to five years. Not appealing. um, Not appealing. Right. So what are some of the common pitfalls that you're going to see with married, not yet separated or married, but recently separated couples when they come in to talk to you about bankruptcy that you think is just very important for people to understand the order in which things need to be done? Do you separate first? Do you file first? Sure. I'm going to give you a lawyerly answer. It's why there are lawyer jokes. It's going to depend. It's going to be very fact sensitive as to the right timing. And I think that that's probably the most important part of any bankruptcy attorney's job is figuring out what to do first and when and in what order. Sort of big picture. If a couple is somewhat struggling even when they're together and living in the same household to meet their obligations. You know, it's hard enough as it is for a lot of us. A lot of us are paycheck to paycheck. When we're looking at 
two households to run, two, two sets of utilities and expenses and mortgages or rent, it's really that much more impossible. And then, you know, most people need a good divorce attorney, someone like you, to at least give them advice on the front end, if not help them all the way through. And that can be expensive as well. So people who have a lot of credit card debt, that's really the number one reason why people call me when they're thinking about separating or they have made the decision to separate. You know, it could be one spouse reaching out. It could be both of them. But credit card debt is a really big driver here. Student loan debt is a big factor. You know, I see a lot of people who are still paying their own loans. It can take up to 30 years if you stretch it out to pay your debt back. And some of these people are paying for their children's debt as well. So that's, you know, that's kind of a double whammy. Medical debt and tax debt, getting back to that too. Bankruptcy is generally not going to help with what we lawyers call domestic support obligations. When the code, the bankruptcy code was revised in 2005, from that point forward, bankruptcy courts are not going to get in the middle of or in the business of modifying or getting rid of alimony, maintenance, child support, and those types of things. So any, you know, really any idea of getting out from under or minimizing those obligations, we're not going to be able to help you with that. Equitable distribution, which is property settlement, that is not dischargeable in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. It's not modifiable. So, you know, people should understand that the bankruptcy court is not going to give them any relief from that. Equitable distribution is dischargeable, meaning it can be wiped out in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy. That's a repayment bankruptcy that we were talking about earlier. And I do think that that's something that if there is a lot of property, if there is a lot of assets or equity within the marriage, then that's something, and there's debt as well, that's where things can get a little bit tricky. And that's where you and I might spend some time on the phone. That's going to be, that's going to take a lot of planning. Now, you had talked about the Chapter 7 and, and liquidating assets being rare, but happening. But you also mentioned exemptions. So I know if you're thinking about, oh my gosh, they can take my stuff and sell it. What do you want to tell everybody who's listening about the exemptions, this protected property that the law says everybody needs at least this and you can't take this from people to satisfy their debts. I think that would be good for people to know. Absolutely. So exempt property or your exemptions, that is the property that the law says that everybody needs to be able to keep to be productive and move on with their lives, whether they have a judgment against them or whether they find themselves in bankruptcy court. And people are always asking me, you know, am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose my car? Am I going to lose my retirement? Generally speaking, retirement accounts are safe in bankruptcy as long as you leave the money there. So if you've got a 401k, an IRA, teachers have 403bs, there's all sorts of different retirement accounts. Generally speaking, if they're set up correctly, which they almost always are, and if you have contributed money to those and you leave it there, you don't borrow against it and you don't take it out, that money is not going to be reached by your creditors or by a bankruptcy trustee. You want to take particular care if one spouse is talking about giving the other spouse a portion of retirement. I know you guys talk about quadros a lot, QDROs, Qualified Domestic Relations Orders. That's the correct way to transfer retirement from one account to another. You have to be really careful to do that correctly before a bankruptcy is filed or else that can be a real problem. But generally, generally, retirement accounts are safe. Most people can keep their car. 
Under North Carolina law, assuming that you are a North Carolina resident and you've lived here for the last two years, if you file for bankruptcy here, North Carolina exemptions are going to apply to you. You can have up to $3,500 in equity in a car, and that's what it sounds like. If you have a car that's paid off, it can be worth up to $3,500, and we generally tell folks to go to CarMax and get an offer that's going to establish value. If it's $3,500 or less, you should be able to keep that. If you have a payment, and the value of the car over the amount that you owe to the lender is $3,500 or less, you're going to be able to keep that car as long as you keep making the payments. It's not going to be worth anything to anybody except for you and the lender. Mortgages, you know, pretty rare up until about two years ago that anybody that we saw had any equity in their house. But with the Charlotte real estate market just skyrocketing in the last couple of years, more and more we're having to be really careful about equity in a home. People get a $35,000 homestead exemption, and that means that the first $35,000 in equity in the home is yours as long as you're on the deed. So, you know, what does that mean? If you owe the mortgage company $100,000 and you owe $120,000, I've got that backwards. If you owe the mortgage company $100,000 and the house is worth $120,000, that's less than $35,000. As long as you can make your payments, you're going to be able to keep that house. Now, is that per owner on the deed? It is. As long, and that's a really good question, as long as it is your primary residence. So, you know, husband and wife live in a home, they owe $100,000 on the mortgage, the house is worth $150,000. As long as they're both living there on the day that they file for bankruptcy, nobody's going to be able to touch that house because they have less than $70,000 in equity in that home. But if one of the spouses moves out, it's not their primary residence anymore. They're only going to be able to claim a few thousand dollars at most, something that's left over in what we call a wild card. So the timing of leaving or moving in can be really important. It's a great point. One of the reasons we really want to make sure people think through the bankruptcy implications before they separate and go ahead and make that decision. And another thing that we talk about quite a bit in our office is the special protection that North Carolina law gives to real estate that's owned by husbands and wives, really spouses. I have to be careful not to overgeneralize and say husbands and wives. Husbands and husbands, wives and wives, husbands and wives. So real estate that's owned by a married couple and that's located in North Carolina, as long as North Carolina exemptions apply to you in bankruptcy, or as long as you're filling out your paperwork when you have a judgment against you, that real estate is protected from individual creditors. And this this can be a little hard to wrap your head around, even if you're a lawyer. What it means is if you and I are married, Lee, and you go out and charge up a whole bunch of credit card debt in your name only, and let's say Amex sues you and gets a judgment against you, and you and I own real estate together. It doesn't have to be our home. It's any real estate in North Carolina. That real estate is protected from your creditors as long as we're married. Likewise, if I go out and get in a bunch of debt and have a judgment against me, the sheriff is not going to be able to force the sale of the house to pay that debt, and it won't be sold in a bankruptcy. However, if you and I have joint unsecured debt, we get a joint Amex together, we both sign off and agree to pay it, We default on that debt and Amex gets a judgment against us for $50,000. If we have more than $70,000 worth of equity in our primary residence, or if it's just an investment property that we own, that's not going to be protected and it can be sold. So that's a really important asset planning tool for married couples. And honestly, if there's something really bad going on, it can be a reason to separate for a long time and to not divorce to protect the value of that property. That's a good point. And this 
it just is related, we're seeing more and more people that choose to live as if they are married, but not actually get married. And this is one of those distinctions where the law has provided protection for people that are married, couples that choose to be married versus couples that choose to live together outside of marriage. Because if you have lived with your significant other for 10 years and have three kids together and own a house together, you do not have that same protection you just spoke about, do you? That's right. You do not. And they would then have to consider everything very differently. So their boyfriend, girlfriend could easily be running up debt that absolutely divest them of their interest in their property. Absolutely. So is there anything that you can't discharge in a bankruptcy? Just people don't even need to even think about it if that's the only reason that they were going to even consider it. Absolutely. Like we said earlier, alimony maintenance, child support, never dischargeable or modifiable in bankruptcy. Sometimes tax debt can be discharged in a bankruptcy. Sometimes it can't. That's really too complicated to go into in any great detail in this show, probably. We can talk about it if you want to, but that, that can get a little bit hairy. Generally, student loan debts do not go away in bankruptcy. And I'm getting more and more calls, more and more interest in talking about student loans being discharged because people are reading There's some change in some other courts. There's some change in some other states. It is really, really difficult to show the undue hardship standard that you have to show in order to discharge student loans. Now, we can deal with student loans in a Chapter 13, and I'm happy to talk about that if that's something that you want to do. But 99.9% of the people who are listening should know that we really can't do much about student loans in a bankruptcy. We certainly usually can't get you out from under them. Bankruptcy is available for honest people who have done their very best and just can't pay. So the flip side of that is there are certain types of debts that people may owe because of intentional wrongdoing. And this is a pretty technical area of the law, but to try to be simplistic about it, they generally fall into two categories. One is a debt that you owe for breach of fiduciary duty, embezzlement, theft, defalcation, all kinds of lying, cheating, and stealing, to use you know simpler words. Mm-hmm. Those types of debts, if the creditor files a lawsuit in the bankruptcy and, and proves their case, those debts are not going to go away. And then the second type of debt that we're talking about is really what lawyers call intentional torts for the lawyers who are listening. It is um, intentional harm to a person, intentional harm to property. I tell people in, you know, in consultations all the time that oftentimes people will get into a car accident and they won't have sufficient insurance. As long as it's an accident, we can discharge whatever you owe on that. But if you intentionally run some over somebody over in South Boulevard, you're not going to be able to get out from under that. And where this really comes up in the domestic context is what we call those heart bomb cases, those cases that are kind of peculiar to North Carolina law, alienation of affection, criminal conversation. Those are really sticky. I've defended those in in bankruptcies. They're expensive. And at the end of the day, you know, if those cases can be proven, bankruptcy is not going to help you out. You're not going to be able to discharge those debts. Now, Heather, one thing that people, well, I have found I did bankruptcy for a very limited time, but I had people that came to me sometimes so late in the game and I felt so terribly for them that they had not sought out help before. They had dealt with years of the creditor phone calls, keeping them up at night. They had sold everything. They had liquidated everything. There was a very ill person who had just been trying to pay medical debt so that they continued to get medical treatment. And they had really waited until there was really nothing left to protect. And they wanted to file the district, uh, I mean, the, the Chapter 7, just to make the phone stop.
stop ringing. It was just interfering with the, and in this case, this person was terminally ill. They just wanted peace. And I was just devastated to think that they had waited because there were a lot of things that could have been done if they came earlier. But that's a very extreme case. But sometimes people are because they're good people and they did enter into the debt honestly, and it was with every intention of repaying it, it was very painful and they wouldn't even consider bankruptcy until it almost could do them no good. But give the listeners some some tips of why it would be important before you exercise self-help to try to satisfy a judgment or uh, make a creditor satisfied of why they probably should come talk to you or someone like you before they they try their own their own way. It's a great question. And two things come to mind. I think a reason to see someone like me mm-hmm. and a reason to see someone like you. First and foremost, if you are tempted to go into your retirement account to pay credit card or medical debt, that's a big red flag right there. Retirement accounts are protected in bankruptcy for a reason. We as a society have made the collective judgment through Congress that we would rather you keep that money in your retirement account so that you can take care of yourself in your golden years rather than rely on all of the rest of us to help you. So we as a society would much rather have you keep all that money in your retirement account rather than take it out and pay credit cards, pay medical debt, those kinds of things. And one of the really the most depressing things about my job, and there's not a lot that's depressing. I get to help people. I'm really lucky that way. I'm generally helping people and making things better. And they're telling me, I wish I'd done this a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. But one of the worst things is, you know, during the initial consultation when we're I'm gathering information to see how I can help, I ask about retirement accounts and they say, all gone. And I say, what happened to them? Well, three years ago, I had $250,000, but I was out of work for a couple of years and I took it out and I paid this debt and I paid that and I negotiated this and it's all gone. Whereas if we talked on the front end, they'd probably still have all that money and not have the debt. The other thing that comes to mind, and this is where you may need to do more of the talking than me, is when people have completed the divorce, the decree has been entered, it's over. And typically one party, and I have to say, stereotypically, it's typically the husband did not have an attorney, did not get any legal advice and just wanted really to do the right thing. For whatever reason, wanted to cooperate with the wife and the kids, give as much as he could, help in whatever way he could, so has signed an agreement that's been incorporated into an order agreeing to pay alimony for 25 or 30 years. And there's really no mechanism in there to modify it based on circumstances. On the front end, you know, the person felt like they were doing the right thing and the good thing, but two or three years into it, they can't keep up the payments. The spouse is, the ex-spouse is upset because she's not getting paid. She's after him to pay. He can't pay. He can't get out of it. He can't modify it. And from all of you great lawyers that I've worked with over the years, I understand that this is basically a breach of contract action. And if there's no mechanism in there for some relief, you're kind of out of luck. And I have a fair number of, in particular, ex-husbands who have just signed really burdensome agreements that they had no hope of ever living up to. And that's, if I could get one message out there today, I would say, you know, even if you think you can't afford an attorney or you don't, you don't think you need one, for gosh sakes, pay somebody to look at whatever it is you're thinking about signing that's been written by the lawyer on the other side who does not have your interests at heart at all. It's true. And sometimes when people are are obligating themselves 
they're doing it to try to make the other person happy, to win them back, to be the good guy or the good gal, and they have every intention of doing it. But it really doesn't help the person that's on the receiving end of that promise either, because if they're not actually going to be capable of collecting that payment, their financial planning is going to be a little bit off if that was what they were doing. And they often gave up something in exchange for that promise of 25 years of payment under that example. And they might have been better off, you know, to have done a different deal. So it really doesn't help either side. It is really important to think through all of these decisions. But I do know that certainly it becomes a fact of life if the finances are tight. And sometimes uh, I'll have people come in and they received a notice of bankruptcy from an ex-spouse and they're really quite upset. And we'll really go get the petition and and look at it and say, look, I don't think this has anything to do with you. In fact, I think by freeing up all of these other obligations, they're actually going to be able to satisfy their debt with you because they're basically prioritizing being able to pay you, especially if it is a non-dischargeable domestic support obligation or something that they can't get out of. Sometimes that it's, it's working out that they're getting rid of other debts and it can be a positive thing that their spouse has has undertaken to see a bankruptcy attorney. But it's still scary when you get that notice in the mail. It is, particularly if it's totally out of the blue and unexpected. You know, again, every case is different. But often when I have a client who is separated or divorced and thinking about filing a bankruptcy, you know, I'll, I'll tell him or her, go ahead and give your ex a good heads up that this is coming. You know, I tell people, try not to tell them what's going to happen or how it's going to work out. But tell them, you know, I think this is going to help you. And maybe you should talk to your own attorney to find out how this is all going to play out. But you're absolutely right. A lot of the time, the bankruptcy filing is going to get rid of all the credit card debt, maybe an old car loan, a repo, an eviction, medical debt, business debt, tax debt, all kinds of debt, freeing up money to pay for the family, for college and for summer camps and all the things that are going to help the ex-spouse and the children. The other thing is in Chapter 13 bankruptcy, and that again is personal reorganization where monthly payments are made, Congress prioritized the payment of debts and what we call domestic support obligations, alimony and child support. If somebody files for Chapter 13 and is behind on alimony or child support, that gets paid first in full before any other creditor is paid, any other unsecured creditor. So for somebody who owes $20,000 in back child support and has $30,000 worth of credit card debt, every penny of that $20,000 in child support has to be paid in full before anything goes to the credit card debt in a Chapter 13. And it could be that nothing goes to the credit card debt. All we do is get caught up on a ch- on the child support arrearage. The other nice thing about Chapter 13 for spouses who are owed money, and that's typically who's on the other side of me, not always, but that's typically, you know, who's on the other side of my client. And one other nice thing about Chapter 13 is it is a very strict and serious condition of Chapter 13 that for a debtor who owes maintenance or child support, they have to stay current during that Chapter 13 or upon request, the case will be dismissed. So I I wouldn't say it's often, but often enough, you know, I have to talk to somebody that we've put in a 13 to get them caught up on these obligations. They'll call me and say, you know, I can't afford the child to keep current this month and pay my Chapter 13 payment. I say, 
well, if you don't pay her on time, she's going to get a lawyer and she's going to file a motion to dismiss saying that you haven't paid her every month what she's owed and she's going to win that. So we got to figure this out. So you're right. It's, it's a shock for a lot of people to get that in the mail, but sometimes it can be the very best thing for the person who's receiving that notice and for the family as a whole. Well, we've talked about this before and this is more of a, a friendly warning is that ex-spouses in your bankruptcy situation can be quite the fly in the ointment. An ex-spouse who has not been satisfied with the way you've behaved with them and finds out that you have filed a bankruptcy petition, these petitions are pretty public. I mean, it's a, it's a court filing. Once it's out there, anyone can go see what you've put in it if they have an interest. It's that is secret. right. Hell hath no fury sometimes like mm-hmm. an ex-spouse scorned. So and they can show up at that meeting of creditors and talk to the trustee about what they know you have that you didn't include on your schedules. Absolutely. They? Under penalty of perjury, one of the prices that you pay for bankruptcy relief is full and complete and honest disclosure about all of your assets and all of your liabilities. And I may be naive after doing this as long as I've been doing it. But I really do believe that most people try very hard to disclose everything. Sometimes people make an honest mistake and forget. And there are people who intentionally hide assets. And if you've got a spouse on the other side, an ex-spouse who is unhappy with you, you'd better believe that he or she is going to comb through that petition, going to call your bankruptcy trustee, maybe call the bankruptcy administrator and report bankruptcy fraud. And that is potentially a steep jail fine, jail time and a steep fine. And that's just something that you, you definitely want to avoid. So be super careful in those types of situations. And super honest. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Heather, we could really talk about this forever. It's an interesting topic, not just for lawyers, but for the, the public, I think. And if someone had a question for you uh, that we didn't talk about today, where would be the best place to find you? I practice at Essex Richards here in Charlotte. It's E-S-S-E-X-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S. You can find me at EssexRichards.com. You can call me at 704 377 4300, or you can email me and the email address is on the website. Be happy to hear from anybody and answer any questions that I can. Well, we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and and talking to us about this topic. Thank you so much. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully, it is full of helpful people valuable resources, and sound advice if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.